When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been gathering and sharing big ideas from some of the most creative minds around. The Think Again podcast takes us out of our comfort zone, surprising our guests and me, your host, with unexpected conversation starters from Big Think's huge interview archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here prepared to discuss. My guest today, and I'm really, really happy she's here, is Jacqueline Woodson. She has written many, many wonderful books and poems for children and young adults, and adults as well, and has won the Coretta Scott King Award, the Newberry Award, the Caldecott, the Poetry Foundation, and the National Book Awards, and a whole bunch of other awards that I'm not going to list here in the interest of time. Her new book, Another Brooklyn, is her first adult novel in 20 years. Welcome to Think Again, Jacqueline. Oh, thanks for having me, Jason. Thanks so much for being here. I'm so excited. Okay, so I guess, you know, I'm going to start with a question that you've probably been asked already on this book tour, but, like, why an adult novel now, and, like, how is it, you know, is it very different for you going into that space as a writer? And, and, and have you been asked that question 30 times already? And, you know, I haven't. I, I haven't. Uh, this is, um, you know, I'm early out on the tour. So, no, well, you're an original. That's thus far. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, after the National Book Award for Brown Girl Dreaming, and after writing that memoir and in the writing of it, realizing where so many of my other books came from, I decided I needed to take a step back from children and young adult literature and really do something different and outside of my comfort zone. So Another Brooklyn was born. And it is different writing for adults because of the way you're allowed to play with time and go way into the future, way back into the past, in the present, whereas when you're writing for young adults and children, you're kind of in a set space of time, a year, a weekend, an hour. Um, So that was fun to be able to have this much bigger canvas, this much larger landscape to tell the story inside of. I also wanted to say that, like, and this isn't really a question more than like a thematic dig that I hope you'll help me unpack a little, but it seems like time, in, like all times are present at all times throughout your mm-hmm. book, and as if memory is pervasive and real and inescapable at every moment, you know? Um, 
Is that something unique to this book? Is that some? Do you see things that way? Are you totally like <laughs> in constant dialogue with memory? I, I definitely feel like I, and, and it comes from a lot of things. I think it comes from growing up a Jehovah's Witness, right? If you read Brown Girl Dreamy, you know I grew up yep. Jehovah's Witness and Muslim, and and having that sense of being in the world but not of the world, right? So right. you're constantly on the outside of your world watching it, and and that's very prevalent in. Um, another Brooklyn in that she is experiencing it and committing it to memory at the same time and then at the beginning when she says what I know now what isn't tragic isn't the moment it's the memory right of right. that moment and so basically she's going back and reliving those moments that even when she was inside of, she wasn't 100% inside of right. because we know she's talking about her mom and all of these ways in which she's not inside of the moment. So it is that duality that was is always fascinating to me. I'm always thinking about memory and how important memory is to every narrative. Well, I think a lot about, you know, what's interesting about like we have this thing in our culture where you're not supposed to dwell like memory <laughs> is this quicksand you know that if you if you're not careful it'll like suck you in and your productivity and momentum but will why? die or whatever yeah it's so interesting because why because it's so <laughs> important I mean I think even in terms of looking like the African-American experience and the history of us coming here right? right and how we survived from a place where we were never meant to survive and the fact that that memory and that history was passed down and passed down and passed down and it's not until people stop talking about it when pe once people stop talking about it and remembering it that's when they fall apart because what's the foundation and I think that's the case for all of us as human beings if you don't have that foundation what are you standing on yeah well and this happens in the conversation between black and white America now mm -hmm. as well in terms of like there's this big hurry to get 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 done with it mm -hmm. like come on you know didn't we take care of that already get like, over it let's move on <laughs> yeah yeah and part of that is like defensiveness and you know on the part of white people not wanting to be confronted with mm -hmm. things that are scary and prickly and whatever but I think part of it is also this weird like progressive optimism of like mm -hmm. let's keep moving forward at all times. Yeah, know? which gets really <laughs> dangerous because what it does for the people who are living inside of whether it's genetic memory or PTSD or whatever, right. it's is that it's saying that your reality is not true. So it invalidates, um, yeah, negates yeah. their whole exactly, thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly, and that lack of validation makes people start second-guessing themselves and it just feels so gaslighting, right? Like, did it happen, did it not happen? It, am I feeling this, am I not feeling this? And that gets really dangerous when that self-doubt starts coming in. And so I think that's part of the reason why I hold on to memory. It's like, I know this, I know this, this happened, and it's important. That, I think that was a great introduction. And on that note, shall we move on to the surprise topics portion of our show? Okay. All right. So this is not a quiz. I mean, I don't, I don't know what these are either. These are three short videos. We're just going to watch them and hopefully okay. have an interesting discussion about each one. We'll see where, you know, hopefully it will spark something. Mm -hmm. So the first one, this is Maria Konnikova on cons and cults. 
there's a saying that's kind of out in the ether, and there are lots of varieties of it, but it goes something like this. Religion emerged when the first scoundrel met the first fool. And this has been attributed to Voltaire, to Mark Twain, to Carl Sagan. I mean, it's been attributed to just about anyone who had a problem with organized religion. And it seems to make a lot of sense because here you have someone who wants meaning, who wants some sort of depth to life. And then you have someone who sees that and says, uh-huh, that's an opportunity for me. I'm smart, I know that life is meaningless. Let me see what would make this person feel better. And if that person feels better, you know what's gonna happen? That person's gonna give me money. And there you have an opening, and there you have the first priest. And I say priest in a, in a very broad way, um, priest of any religion or any spiritual movement, or a cult leader by the way. Most people are not scoundrels, but there are plenty of scoundrels out there. And it certainly doesn't help us that we are all basically hardwired to trust other people. We're really bad at spotting deception. And you actually see um, over the course of history that societies with greater levels of trust end up being societies that develop more. And so it, you, we, we end up trusting and that plays into our wanting to believe even more. And so con artists just have a field day. It's interesting. You know, my, I, of course, I want to know who and what she believes in. Like, that's my first thought. I think that... <laughs> She's a psychologist, so she believes, I guess, in what the evidence tells her. <laughs> oh, man. I, I think that for so many, religion is a way of having hope, right? Right. Um, I know, you know, I think when we go back to the days of enslavement, the afterlife was the con, right? It was like, <laughs> right. you know, you might not have what you're getting, what you need now, but, you know, in the afterlife is waiting for you, so just be a good enslaved person and, and it'll all work out. At the same time, it was the only place where enslaved people were allowed to have some freedom, right? That was the only place where the people who owned them trusted them to be together alone. Right. And so it was a very, very important institution. And as a result, it stayed in the African-American community as an important institution. So we can't discount that. Right. That's what comes to mind for me. I think people need their systems of belief. And it was um, Walt Whitman who said, argue not concerning God, right? It's a wrap. Like, yeah. people have their faith, let them have their faith. I'm not going to argue it. I'm not going to try to change their faith. As long as their faith is not hurting me or hurting other people, I'm good with it. Sadly, too often it does hurt other people. I just came back from Palestine and it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a scary yep. situation what's going there now. So, I think in my own coming to terms with religion and organized religion and spirituality, organized religion is not for me. <laughs> I, think, right. I think I got a lot out of being a witness and that one thing I learned that my kids aren't learning was how to be bored, right, for okay. many, many hours. <laughs> and, and, and as a result, uh, let my mind go to many places and create many stories. Oh, wow. so. Well, surely other things could take the place of that, like taking them to an empty field without their iPhone or something or whatever, <laughs> right? I mean. I guess so. <laughs> I, guess, I guess they'd be pretty lost, so. But it is, um, but it, all, it was all, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, it's also a text-based religion. So, mm -hmm. so I learned how to study. I learned how to sit 
for many hours and and concentrate on one character <laughs> and make flesh that character out until I understood them. So I think um, right. she has a, a good interesting point. I think it's not a point for everyone because I think you have to look much deeper at what religion gives back. We can't just look at it as a kind of capitalistic thing, but like what, what are people getting in return for their faith? Yeah, no, I mean, I get that. It's it's deeply embedded in culture, it's deeply embedded in history, and it's, like, fundamental to, to people's lives and mm -hmm. identity. So when you discount it entirely, you discount mm -hmm. them. But, like, I have arrived at a point, after a kind of, like, agnosticism period in my mid-20s, where I was like, there is spiritual energy in the world that connects all things. I've arrived at a point where I see deep meaning, I see deep beauty in the world, but I just... I look at religion and I just can't, I, I, I can't see how any thinking person would look at that and not, except for the fact that they've been totally indoctrinated in it mm -hmm. from childhood, mm -hmm. not say, well, wait which a minute, big. which is huge, <laughs> and not say, well, this could just as easily have all been created by, like, I might as well say it was created by a giant cube of jello that's mm -hmm. intelligent, you know, like, mm -hmm. I just don't see the way around that argument, and it makes me uncomfortable in dealing with religious people now. Like, uh, uh, <laughs> do you feel like you have to agree with them? I don't feel like I have to agree with them, but I feel like there has to be some way of making sense of like mm -hmm. why you think that this guy at this time in history came along and gave you the truth mm -hmm. and those folks over there who think that that other guy gave them yeah. the truth are wrong, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's all kinds of ways of fudging yeah. that intellectually, you know, and saying, mm -hmm. well, it's many paths, one mountain, whatever, but. Uh-huh. It's interesting. <laughs> I, 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 I completely hear what you're saying, and I think having been indoctrinated, I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't not believe in what people believe for themselves. So I think if you believe that God is a woman in heaven who's actually marrying the mother of Christ, or whatever the situation mm. is, I'm gonna nod because that's who you are and we're two different people and that's what you believe. And I think that belief doesn't necessarily have to be everybody's truth, right? Those okay. are two very different things. So and can you can you explain that a little bit to me what you mean by that? By belief what you By saying belief doesn't have to be everybody's truth. So yeah. so what you believe in doesn't have to be my truth because you're coming at it from a completely different experience than I am. So okay. so you know, I believe that we as people of color are right now getting persecuted in this country, right? You might believe that too, but a lot of people don't because they're not living inside of my experience, or they're not, right. their eyes aren't open to my experience, or they can't understand my experience. Um, but it's my truth, and it's what I believe, and it's not their truth, right? So I think I get that. I get that. Yeah. But like, and and look, I, I don't, you know, I'm not Spock. I don't believe that every <laughs> single thing is, you know, discernible by evidence. But mm -hmm. I do think that that's slightly different. I think that like there is a body of evidence out there demonstrating that there has been like systemic aggression, for example, mm -hmm. on the part of 
police officers toward members of the black community and worse, you know. And that like those aren't like just different stories that we're telling ourselves, you but, know. So another example is my daughter's dad is a science brain. Science to the bone, evolution, okay. evolution, fact, fact, fact. And my daughter is like, you know, of course I'm an atheist, you know. Evolution is is just it's so obvious, mommy. And, and and she's like, so what do you believe in? And I'm like, I believe in both. I believe in creationism and evolution. And evolution. And she's like, how is that possible? I'm like, I don't know. It's just the way my mind works. Right, 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 right. And like her mind was blown, the idea that you could live in a world where those two parallel truths exist, right? Mm. But it's all in Jacqueline Woodson's brain, right? Just That's like it's all in everybody's brain. And, and you know, my partner's a physician, right? So science to the bone again. And it's just like, okay, that, that's who you are. And some people might see it as crazy. Some people might see it as makes sense. Some people, and it does come back to that Whitman, like, are you not concerning God? Because God is so different for so many people. And, and again, it comes from me, as long as it's not hurting anyone, I don't, I, there's so many other things I can argue. <laughs> right, 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 sure. Well, but see, there's a difference between arguing and being curious and yeah. like wanting to understand, That's right? And as a, as a writer and somebody who, you know, cares about character and who mm -hmm. people are, like, you know, like, I'm sure you're curious about people. I mean, it sounds like you're giving people a certain, like, distance of respect or something to say, like, you... Which you also need as a writer, right? right? To right. understand all your different characters. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's what it is for me. Because, like, I don't, you know, the, you have the new atheists, you know, that mm -hmm. the, the Hitchens and, and others who want to, like, yeah. get up on a stage and debate and be like, you are wrong and you're an idiot. Like, that's, mm -hmm. that's something. That's one thing, but asking questions about like, how can that be? I think that's trying exactly. to understand, you yeah. know? Like, yeah. I completely agree. <laughs> <laughs> wow, um, we'll never get to the bottom of this mystery. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it, fun. It, yeah, I, I enjoyed that, I enjoyed that. And I, I, I hope the next one will be as fruitful. This is, oh, this should be fun. Lindsay Adario on the power of photographs. I believe in the power of images. I think uh, I wouldn't be a photographer if I didn't believe in the power of images. I think there's an immediacy to an image uh, that obviously text or writing doesn't have. They both are incredibly powerful tools, but they hit you at different moments. So an image that can speak to people really can bring them to that place or transport them to that moment of pain or that moment of urgency or whatever that emotion is I'm trying to convey in that image. I think that an image has the ability to take the viewer there immediately. I completely agree with her. <laughs> there is an immediacy to photographic images that you don't get with writing, of course, right? I mean, as writers, we try to create pictures with the words, but the reader has to do the work of getting through the words in order to see that picture, whereas the imagery, right. you know, the f photographic imagery is right there in your face. And the thing that I love about her work is that it is, it's telling its own story and, not, and one that you want to kind of dive into as opposed to quickly turning the page because it's such a gory one. Yeah, and I'm going to say something that's going to sound contrarian, but I'm not being a devil's advocate or anything. It's just a fact for me. I feel like like she started with that thesis that photographs have this like immediacy that other media do not. 
for me, that's not the case. And I wonder whether that's, you know, just very different from person to person, depending on how our brains are wired. Like, mm -hmm. I can't get inside a story from even the best visual image. Huh. Hearing people speak, reading about it in depth, for better or worse, that's my way in. Like, well, I think the interesting thing with the photographs is I can definitely go in and be there while I'm looking at it, but once the image is no longer there, I'm not with it any longer. And whereas with words, they tend to resonate longer. So that's the flip side of immediacy, mm -hmm. right? But it's interesting because when you think of our brains and then you think of the much younger brains, I wonder if they're processing images differently. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, th I think I'm sort of in denial about <laughs> all of that. I just tend to believe, like, I have this belief, which I think is probably totally false, that, like, there just are and always will be the word people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I, I agree. I agree. And uh, also, there will always be that need for word content, right? Yeah. What do you, I mean, this is going off script a little bit, but, like, I'd be curious to know, like, what, when you're not writing, like what what are you reading? What mm. what 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 books like have really done it for you in recent years? Or are you gonna tell me you don't have any time to read? Oh <laughs> no no no! I read and I read and I okay. read. I read very slowly. So me too. Of course, um, Tanahasi Coates, Between the World and Me. I read that too. Blew me away. Um, I'm now reading um, Ben Ehrenreich's The Way to the Spring. It's about Palestine, and okay. he was a journalist who went there for I guess a week or something and then went back and stayed three years. Um, also, um, what fiction am I reading? I just finished a book called The Mothers that I thought was really great, a first time novelist. So I, I read all over the place. I'm revisiting Zula by Toni Morrison just because it's one of my go-to books in between reading to just make me remember how great writing is supposed to look. <laughs> I read a lot of poetry. I, uh, one of my favorite books of poetry is Marie Howe's What the Living Do, mm. which if you haven't read it, have you not. don't even have to like poetry. So. I, I will I will check it out. No, I do I do like poetry. Um, although I'm always a little like unclear how to like I want to read it out loud pretty mm -hmm. much and it's there's like you just kind of have to make an opportunity for that otherwise you're yeah. you seem insane like <laughs> <laughs> reading it's, aloud on the subway or whatever. Well, but also when I'm reading it sometimes I get rid of the line breaks and just read it like a narrative. And so this is a narrative. This is a story of her family. Okay. Then I go back and read it with um, the poet's intentionality and see the way the poems are different between the two readings. So this goes back to the kind of immediacy thing with photography, like with poetry, I feel like I have, if it's a really, really good poem, really dense poem, and that can be different with narrative poetry sort of, but I feel like I have to read it multiple, mm -hmm. multiple times. Yeah, I completely agree. And every time I revisit it, something new happens. Yeah. We'll talk about unpacking. Yeah, it's like, and that's something that's happened to me, like over time I find that I've become less patient for that and you know, it's just I think part of living in the mm -hmm. times that we do and whatever and so I have to like remind myself like, slow down dude, yeah. like reread. You know? It's true, it's one of the things with Another Brooklyn, I mean the white space is intentional and the way I'm breaking the vignettes up is intentional and 
whenever someone's like, you know, I read it in a couple hours, I'm like, go back and read it again <laughs> because there, you, you missed a lot of what I was trying to do and trying to breeze through it. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, I, I, I totally get that. It's, there's a lot of depth going on mm -hmm. there. It's like physically, it's like a, you know, it's not a brick compared to mm -hmm. some other books, but it's it's got a lot more depth than a lot of bricks that I've <laughs> read. So, um, all right, that that's probably about as far as we can or need to go with that one. Let's see what the what the third one is. Okay. All right, all right. It is Sebastian Junger. Yes. Mandatory national service might save the U.S. Oh, mm. I I think I probably am agreeing with that already. All right, let's huh. see. Depends what kind of service we're talking about. When you have a country that's in such a state of disrepair, what can you do to bring it together? One possibility is mandatory national service with a military option. Uh, personally, I think it's immoral to force someone to fight a war they don't believe in. But mandatory national service would not just be enacted during wartime. It would be continual. And it would allow young people to contribute to us all contribute to this country without having to carry a gun. You can do it in many other positive ways and I think it would do enormous good not just for the young people themselves but also for for this country as a whole. This country doesn't require anything of its citizens. When you when you don't have to invest in something you don't value it. One of the advantages of mandatory national service is that, is that it enforces an investment of a year or two by a young person in the collective good of this country. And when you do that, you create value. It takes all the races, all the social classes, everything, all the educational levels and puts them in a big pot and stirs them up together and gives everyone the experience of investing in the collective good. The downside, of course, is that we're in a very sort of anti-government state of mind right now in this country. Um, and that there might be um, objections to it. One of the reasons we might be in an anti-government state of mind is precisely because no one in this country is required to spend any time at all contributing to the collective good. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a feedback loop. How do you break that feedback loop? Well, you break it by changing the law. Okay, <laughs> where shall we begin? Huh. I mean, I, I have some thoughts, but if you... If no, you, you go first. <laughs> like, on one level, I agree. Like, I think that it is certainly the case that I grew up, you know, in the suburbs, and many people I know, know grew up without much sense of investment in or responsibility mm -hmm. toward the United States or, or a sense of collective civic duty mm -hmm. or, or love, you know, for, for the country as the country. So I get that a little mm -hmm. bit. And um, at the same time, I totally hear what he's saying. Like, I, Americans don't like being told what to do. <laughs> and there are a lot of people who have a very strong vested interest in not having the government send them off to go do something mm -hmm. against their will. Yeah, I think it, um, if it's not going to war, right? Because he's saying basically just a national service that's some service to the country, but it doesn't have to necessarily be a military service. Right. So I think I do like that idea. I think it's a hard one to implement and have it be 
not all the other things this country has been, which is jacked up. In terms of, <laughs> I don't believe that some kids who are coming from some impoverished background are going to get the same jobs as some kids who are coming from really wealthy backgrounds. I think there's still going to be an ex economic and racial disparity because that's what this country was built on. Right, and so right, we, right. Can, we can try to change some of the rules, but if we don't go back to the fundamentals of this country and say, this is what we need to fix before we can get to this. I mean, there are reasons people don't love this country. And so, so it's, and it's not necessarily because they don't feel that, that they don't feel part of a collective. I mean, I have a huge village of people and I adore them and I would die for them and they're Americans, but in terms of what this country has done to us and has done to other countries, it's like, I don't know. Like, there would need to be some work that needs to be done in this country to make me feel like I'm truly a part of it before I can say, yeah, you know what, I'm signing my kids up. <laughs> like, that makes a lot of sense. No, when, I was, when he was talking, I had the thought very much along these lines that he was really speaking about a very specific group, which mm -hmm. is kind of the group I come from, like the semi-privileged white people who mm -hmm. basically don't necessarily get that sense of connection to, mm -hmm. to the larger whole. But I was also thinking that, like, yeah, there are plenty of people who have very legitimate grievances and mm -hmm. and wouldn't be on board, you know? <laughs> I mean, like, I'm thinking, like, theoretically, if you could have some kind of totally egalitarian menu of options, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you can work within your own community to help the people that are suffering there. Or you can, you know, go all the way across the country and go teach in a school or... Mm -hmm whatever, help rescue flood victims if there's a flood. Like, mm -hmm. still still that probably would be a no-go from your perspective I, until you know some what? other work was yeah, done. Yeah, until we start with reparations. I mean, you know, the elephant in the room is this country has never apologized for slavery. Like, that's the beginning. <laughs> like, and that, that, and how come no one's talking about that, that we need to start with this country doing the work and everybody, you know, Germany has apologized for the Holocaust, right? Everyone's apologized. And this country has never stood up and said, you know what, we jet, we messed up. Like, and, and we're glad you're here now, so what can we do from this point on? And then, I, I mean, these are all conversations yeah. that we can begin having once we are on a level playing field. And so once we've had those fundamental conversations about what needs to be fixed for so many people, and then we can move forward. But I think in terms of a national service, no, we did that for 400 years. <laughs> like, yeah, right, 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 right. You know, right I am right. not about to sign People up People work, working against their will, <laughs> yes, right, right. Um, yeah, and this is, a, I think, a confession of glaring ignorance on my part, but I had never really considered the fact that the US, there's never been a formal mm -mm. apology mm -mm. of any kind. Mm -mm. I mean, we've they had lots of conversations. get 40 acres and a mule, like, yeah. yeah, no, no, no one's ever stood up and said, you know what, we messed up. Which is, which is, you know, just the tip of the iceberg, mm -hmm. but would be something. Yeah, yeah it would be something. I think people would be like, okay, yes, we're forgiving people. I mean, I think... Human beings in general want to forgive. We don't want to walk through the world with grudges, right? right. You, want, you want to just walk through the world with no baggage. And I feel like that's the thing about this country, that we, we still have work to do.
I mean, for all that one hears about white supremacists over in Germany, like they have made a very strong collective effort mm -hmm. to educate their children about mm -hmm. what happened, and mm -hmm. that's like totally embedded in the culture yeah. at this point. And we get very little of that here. I mean, I, when you look at the educational system, I don't know if you remember, but you get a little bit of enslavement, it's called slavery, which is wrong because it wasn't voluntary. People were enslaved, which, you know, by saying slavery, it takes the onus off the fact that people wanted to own other people. Right, like, right. That, that was jacked up. And then you get, Jim, we start, for the kids, they start at the civil rights movement, but we don't know the civil rights movement was about enslavement and then reparations. I mean, you know, not reparations, I'm sorry, and then reconstruction. Yeah. And then we, and then Jim Crow happened because people were living too well. Like even when you hear about black mayors, you don't hear the first black mayor because they existed during Reconstruction. People were thriving. You know, you don't, you never hear about the fire. I'm, I'm forgetting the state just because I'm getting worked up. But when they set the Black Wall Street on fire in Tulsa, the Tulsa riots, kids don't learn about Reconstruction and a period where African Americans were thriving. They go right into civil rights, and then we get Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King, and right. now everything is good, right? So even at that foundational level of how we're teaching our kids about the history of the country, and we know with the textbooks that said black people came over here voluntarily, and then there was this huge uproar, yeah, and they yeah, had yeah. to take them off the shelves. But but we're constantly trying to rewrite this history as opposed to fix it. And I think that once we begin having those conversations about how this history, we can fix just the foundation of why people are so angry and not getting along and people are frustrated with other people because they think they should have passed it, like, right. then we can begin to have conversations. But until then, he can keep his national service. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and this goes back a little bit to what we were saying before about that kind of collective optimistic denial mm -hmm. of like, let's move forward and mm -hmm. focus on what's positive and not on all the bad parts. But like, yeah. then you can't mourn, like you can't go through those stages of grieving, you know, exactly. and then you can't process it. And then, mm -hmm. and then you're just, there's a pathology built in mm -hmm. to the system forever. It's you know? so true. Do you think that now, I mean, we're also getting tons of like obnoxious counter voices, but do you think that now with what's happening with Black Lives Matter, with like some of these conversations that are happening, that like it's moving in a positive direction or not? Or, or that we're just mired in the same old like, well, I guess what I'm saying is mm -hmm. we're seeing, mm -hmm. we're seeing these things a little yeah. bit. I don't know if we're really processing them, but we're seeing I them. I think things are starting to shake up. I think it's good that people are speaking out and kind of showing who they truly are. So in terms of the people who are supporting all kinds of anti-black movements and the people who are speaking out for right. those movements, I think it's important that everyone's feeling very uncomfortable. And that's, for me, as a, an optimist sometimes, that feels like the beginning of change. I think that what's happening a lot with Black Lives Matter is it's, it's constantly trying to get squashed, like in terms of when the sniper happened, they were trying so hard to make that be a part of Black Lives, and we knew that guy had nothing to do with Black Lives Matters, but Black Lives Matter, you know, the dialogue was they incited it. And not that the NRA and the whole, like, conceal and right. carry incited right. anything, so. Just so, by existing, they incited <laughs> exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so the narrative, I think people try to change the narrative, and we have to continue to be focused and know the truth about what's going on, and I think then we can move forward. 
Jacqueline Woodson, it's been great talking to you, and I suggest that everyone out there should read Another Brooklyn. It's a beautiful, beautiful novel. Thanks so much for coming on the show oh, today. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. It's been a lot of fun. And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you're hearing, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you're listening, and do us a huge favor and just rate or quickly review the show. I have to say that every time a review trickles in, I read every single one of those and I'm absolutely delighted. So you are sending a personal message to me and you are also helping other people to find the show whenever you write a review for us. Thank you to those who have done so already. And uh, we'll be back next week with another great conversation. See you then.